The truth lies in bedtime stories. From See Through News. Series 3 Life on the Edge. Taiwan, China, America, and the moment I realized Mrs. Wang was mostly guessing what her husband said. Episode 1 A Hot Day in Alabama. I don't want to get too hung up on the matter of Mr. and Mrs. Wang's mutual comprehension. Remarkable though it is, it's less interesting than the fact that they were married at all, which is much less fascinating than how they met in the first place, which is way less astonishing than what Mr. Wang had been doing for the previous 30 years, which is way, way less jaw-dropping than why Mr. Wang ended up doing that. But still, Mr. and Mrs. Wang's mode of communication contains some very important information that you'll need to make sense of this incredible untold story of Cold War theatrics, sibling bonds, and the unexpected consequences of selling dried squid. Along the way, you may, as I did, learn some background on China and Taiwan that's looking increasingly important to know, but... Let's start at the beginning. I just checked the tape so I know the exact moment. I wanted to establish the precise point at which I reappraised the nature of Mr. and Mrs. Wang's relationship. As I remembered, it was when I asked Mrs. Wang to ask Mr. Wang the wheelbarrow question. It happens a few minutes into the interview. Reviewing the footage, it's more obvious now than it was at the time. It comes when I had a question that required more meat on the bones of the amazing story Mrs. Wang had previously outlined to me about her husband's life. Until the wheelbarrow question, I'd assumed Mrs. Wang had been doing a fine job interpreting between her husband's obscure island dialect and either Mandarin Chinese or English. But then came the awkwardness. How? I asked Mrs. Wang to ask her husband. Amid all the chaos of that morning in 1955, with such steep, narrow, crowded paths leading down from their village, had Mr. Wang managed to get the wheelbarrow containing his paralysed little brother as far as the beach. For reasons I'll explain, Mrs. Wang was sitting behind me, so as the awkward silence extended, her demeanour provided no hint of the tricky situation I'd put her in. I could barely follow the Hangzhou dialect she used to talk to Mr. Wang, her husband of 30 years. I had still less of a clue about the island dialect Mr. Wang used in reply. Her translation of the wheelbarrow question had taken a bit longer to pose and sounded less fluent and assertive, but it was only when I saw Mr. Wang's deepening, furrowed brow of incomprehension that it hit me. Mrs. Wang's ability to communicate with Mr. Wang was, I suddenly realised, something less than ideal. My Mandarin Chinese is OK, but when it came to this impromptu interview, I might as well have not spoken it at all. 
Mr Wang, though blessed with an exceptionally friendly and warm personality, spoke only his native island dialect. Technically, it was a dialect of Chinese, but a Glaswegian conversing with a Sicilian would understand each other better than Mr Wang and I. He was diplomatic enough to pretend to understand my Mandarin, and until the wheelbarrow question, body language had served our purposes absolutely fine. Nearly all of our interactions had been related to his cooking and how delicious it was, which works fine in pantomime. It was only when I'd asked if Mr Wang would mind me recording his life story that the need for some more effective communication had arisen. That was why Mrs Wang had offered her services as interpreter for the video interview I was conducting when I got to the wheelbarrow question. The content of Mr Wang's stuttering response was as impenetrable to me as every other word I'd ever heard him utter, but even I could tell that A, he'd got the wrong end of the stick, and B, Mrs Wang had no idea at the end of the stick that he'd got. So, that's how we'd arrived at this delicate situation. It's all there, on the tape. Mr Wang, struggling to understand his wife's question, Mrs. Wang, struggling to finesse her issues with transmitting my question and his reply. Me, struggling to work out how to save everyone's face, but still winkle out the story I was trying to uncover. On the tape, during this awkward gap, you can hear the ceiling fan. I remember it barely stirred the hot viscous August air of their suburban Alabama living room. Some diplomatic rephrasing of the question and a bit more pantomime and the interview got back on track. But that, that was the moment I realised Mrs Wang was mostly guessing what her husband said. Sure, they were educated guesses. The more they'd spoken about a topic before, the more reliable her interpretations were. But from that moment on in the interview, I started phrasing my questions more carefully, using more gestures to avoid further embarrassment. After that sticky patch, the rest of the interview went fine. I ended up with a reasonably comprehensive version of Mr Wang's life story on the record. Most of us like being asked about ourselves, but imagine how you'd feel if, after 40 years of not understanding and not being understood, you'd finally got the chance to tell your life story. Mr Wang made up for the limits of his verbal communication with his great natural ebullience and enthusiasm, usually expressed via the medium of food. Whenever I showed up, he'd already have his apron on and be hovering by the kitchen door. My appearance at the front door would be his cue to give a cheery wave of greeting, sharpen his chopper, open the fridge and start cooking something delicious while I chatted to his wife. After 30 years as a ship's cook and 15 as a chef in Chinese restaurants in Alabama, Mr Wang's universal language was food. After hearing about his life story in dribs and drabs, I called Mrs Wang to ask if he'd mind me recording him telling it. Before she could relay his response, I could tell from his muffled bellow of delight he was up for it. 
When Mr. Wang opened the door that day, it was the first time I'd ever seen him without his apron on. He'd put on some smart clothes, a tie even, and was beaming even more broadly than usual. I set up the camera between two chairs in the living room and invited him to sit opposite me while I faffed about with microphones, lighting and framing. As I did so, he kept up his staccato barrage of conversation with his wife, not a word of which I understood. I couldn't help smiling at the contrast between Mr. Wang's beaming face and the string of impenetrable sharp barks that tumbled from it. I asked Mrs. Wang to pull up a chair and sit behind me rather than next to me. This caused a bit of confusion before I explained to her, and she to Mr. Wang, this would keep Mr. Wang's eyeline constant. You see, most interviewees instinctively look at the interpreter rather than the questioner. If we sit side by side, I explained to Mrs. Wang, and she to Mr. Wang, her husband's eyes would constantly be flitting between us. What felt polite to him ends up looking shifty on camera. Mrs. Wang appeared to successfully convey this TV journalist's trick of the trade to her husband, as he was soon nodding, grinning and giving me the thumbs up, as his wife settled down behind me, peeking round my right ear. As I overheard them conversing while testing sound levels, I reflected again what an odd but well-matched couple they were. Mrs. Wang was educated. Not many Chinese women of her era had been to university like her. Mr. Wang was barely literate. They'd met when she'd hired him at her Chinese buffet restaurant and were married within a year. This boss-worker relationship, overlaid onto traditional Chinese patriarchal power balances, transplanted to conservative Alabama in relatively liberal America, made for a potentially complex cocktail of status imbalances. But I'd never seen any sign this bothered either of them in the slightest. Mr. and Mrs. Wang treated each other with great deference, affection and consideration. I'd never seen them argue, and their mutual love was visible in their every interaction. The matter of their language of communication had always intrigued me, but I'd just taken Mrs. Wang's explanation at face value. She told me her native Hangzhou dialect wasn't a million miles from his peculiar island dialect, and that she'd picked up some of her husband's words. Mr. Wang, by contrast, remained resistant to speaking anything other than his mother tongue. Now in his sixties, he'd left his native island at the age of eighteen. In the half-century since, he hadn't picked up more than a few words of any other language. It was a tribute to Mr. Wang's other life skills that he'd not only survived, but made his journey from last-minute Cold War evacuee to comfortable suburban Alabama retiree without anyone other than his few thousand fellow islanders properly understanding the noises that emanated from his wrinkled, tanned sailor's face. What I'd heard from Mrs. Wang about his amazing life story and the equally extraordinary stories of his two brothers was enough to prompt me to want to get it on record. So far as I could tell, no one else had yet done so. I'd looked. Libraries had turned up nothing. 
Online, I'd trawled through some retired U.S. Navy veteran forums. I'd found a few eyewitness accounts of this amazing episode of Cold War history. For the U.S. Pacific Fleet, the 1955 event that turned the lives of Mr. Wang and his two brothers upside down was one of their proudest, finest, though most underreported hours. So there was a bit on the record about the rescuers and their heroic but relatively minor role. I'd trawled the internet for anything reflecting the perspective of Mr. Wang and his few thousand fellow islanders, but found nothing. Given the islanders only numbered 18,000, this was plausible. Given even Chinese people from a couple of hundred miles away who'd been married to them for decades couldn't understand their dialect, it was unsurprising. My impulse to put the remarkable story of Mr. Wang and his two brothers on the record was the reason the three of us, me, Mr. Wang and Mrs. Wang sitting behind me, were slowly baking in an Alabama living room at the turn of the millennium and how I came to ask the wheelbarrow question. Over the past two decades, I've tried to interest broadcasters in this amazing story, but not one of them bid. There's still hardly anything about it on the internet. And that's why, nearly two decades later, I'm finally getting round to telling the story of Big Wang, Middle Wang, and Small Wang, and putting it out there for you to find. In episode two, The Three Brothers Wang, Mr. Wang, via Mrs. Wang, tells us the extraordinary circumstances under which he'd left a perfectly good breakfast on the kitchen stove in order not to become communist. Episode two, The Three Brothers Wang. There was a lot to contend with. The Alabama heat, the clunky translation, the passage of half a century, an interviewee who'd had little formal education and wasn't used to communicating via any means other than food. Yet, 20 years after he told it to me, Mr. Wang's story remains as unexpected, astonishing and gripping as it was on that sultry Alabama summer's day. The man I've so far called Mr. Wang grew up as Middle Wang, or at least he did after his younger brother was born. Two years separated Middle Wang from his elder brother, known as Big Wang, and from his younger brother, known, yep, as Small Wang. They were born in the 1930s on an island in the East China Sea about halfway between Shanghai and the mainland port of Fuzhou, if that means anything to you. The island was called Big Chen Island, Da Chen Dao. It was part of a group of a couple of dozen islands, but only a couple of them had significant populations. Big Chen Island is around 20 kilometers from the Chinese mainland, not a huge distance, not a trivial one either. Far enough that the 18,000 islanders had always had to be pretty self-sufficient, and 
the brothers Wang grew up during a particularly chaotic period. Born into the chaos of warlord factionalism and the emerging communist peasant movement, China then experienced Japanese occupation, the Second World War, and then civil war between the communists and the nationalists. In many ways, a small subtropical island of no great strategic importance was a rather good place to grow up when China was in such turmoil. Life on the margins has its advantages, especially if you're quite happy for no one to pay close attention to what you're up to. Officially, the islanders subsisted on fishing. Unofficially, their sailing skills were not unhelpful in pursuit of other traditional trades that, in the views of some, might cross the line into the realm of the illegal. Piracy and smuggling are words used by the powerful to prevent people on the edge of society from threatening the status quo. When the status quo was quite as chaotic as it was in China in the 1930s and 40s, the islanders of Big Chen Island might have been forgiven the odd legal transgression as they sought their own ways to survive. Being so few in number on such a small island, not on the way to anywhere, the Big Chen Islanders threatened no one. As they had been for centuries, they were pretty much left to their own devices. They also made a point of avoiding interfering with anyone else's devices, apart from a bit of low-level piracy, and selling their contraband home-distilled sorghum liquor without troubling the tax collectors. Maybe that's how they developed such a strong dialect. When you're minding your own business, 20 miles of open sea may as well be a thousand. This remote but far from unpleasant island life was what the brothers Wang grew up with. Bit of fishing, bit of farming, bit of <clears throat> maritime trade. This was how Big Wang spent his first 20 years, Middle Wang his first 18 years, and Small Wang his first 16 years. It's easy to paint this as too idyllic, of course. Life on the edge is tough. Mothers routinely died in childbirth, like the brother's mother had after delivering Small Wang. Fathers would set out fishing and one day never return, like theirs had eight years after. Typhoons could sink ships at sea and destroy houses on land. The Industrial Revolution had barely made it as far as Big Chen Island. They lived a subsistence lifestyle with radiating circles of dependence on close family, clan units and their island community. Chinese often use the saying, the mountains are high and the emperor is far away, to explain how local practices can diverge from official policy. 20 miles of open sea, it turns out, can be just as effective a barrier to governance as a mountain range. On Big Chen Island, children were expected to work as soon as they were able. That was why Small Wang joined his uncles and brothers out on the family fishing boat at the age of 10. That was how when he didn't avoid the boom in time, Small Wang had become paralysed, paraplegic. Ever since, his family had cared for him. 
They couldn't leave Small Wang alone, even for an instant, and had to take him wherever they went, whether tending their fields, onshore, or fishing at sea. The only practical way to transport Small Wang up and down the steep, narrow paths from their stone cottage to their boats on the beach was in a wooden wheelbarrow. The brothers performed what became known as the butt-kissing move dozens of times a day, so often they barely needed to look at each other while executing it. Each brother would grab one of Small Wang's limp hands, plunge his head below one of his limp arms, and grab one of his limp legs. When they stood up, Small Wang would be folded over their strong shoulders. It happened in a flash, and the butt-kissing move became a well-known entertainment on Big Chan Island. The brothers would sometimes play to the crowd, joking about the position they now found themselves in. The big brothers would say there was really no need for Small Wang to kiss their asses to thank them, and Small Wang would complain about the smells emanating from where his nose had ended up. Maybe because sudden, out-of-the-blue disaster was part of everyday life in pre-liberation China, maybe because of the support of his tight-knit family and island community, or maybe because he was just that kind of ten-year-old, Small Wang bore his paraplegia lightly. Denied any physical movement of his four limbs, Small Wang made the most of his ears, tongue and brain. He was curious quick to learn, and memorized everything. Small Wang was in a constant state of conversation, listening as much as he spoke and interacting with everyone he met. On a small island, that was almost literally everyone. By the time of the events of this story, Small Wang, now 16 years old, not only knew everyone on the island, but had become known by them as a repository of information about everything that happened on their island. People would borrow him, wheeling him to their homes to exchange the latest gossip, and, as he grew older, seek his opinion. Thus did Small Wang become Big Chen Island's portable oracle and mobile library. Middle Wang was a younger version of the same character you met in episode one, as a young man, he had the same sunny outlook, enthusiasm and work ethic he displayed when I got to know him in suburban Alabama towards the end of his life. He started early as a chef. With no mother and then no father, Middlewang took on the cooking duties and enjoyed them. He was always first up to get the fire going and start cooking the breakfast rice porridge and preparing tasty side dishes. These were usually pickled vegetables he'd cultivated himself in the family's fields down the slope from their front door, combining vegetables like asparagus lettuce with favourite herbs like nine-storey pagoda basil. Middle Wang was increasingly taking on the work tasks done by the eldest as Big Wang began to spend more time away from the island. At twenty, Big Wang had his own cargo boat. He'd sail it to the mainland to trade dried fish for goods they couldn't make on the island or to pick up cash doing delivery-odd jobs for the merchants of Taizhou and Wenzhou. Big Wang would sometimes disappear for weeks at a time. They'd only know he was back 
when they saw his boat approaching the little harbour. Big Chen Island had no radio mast or receiver, so news only arrived in person or by word of mouth. This was why Small Wang, wheeled from house to house, played such an important role in Big Chen Island life. He was their local search engine, switchboard, reporter and broadcaster. So it was that Big Wang was not on the island on February the 10th, 1955. Middle Wang and Small Wang were sorry their big brother hadn't been around for the spring festival celebrations. The Lunar New Year feasting had begun on January the 24th that year. A couple of months before, they'd waved goodbye to Big Wang in his little boat, laden with dried squid and hopes of making money from some odd jobs once he'd got there. This was Big Wang's longest absence yet, but his brothers, as they chatted while Middle Wang prepared breakfast as dawn broke on February the 10th, 1955, had no particular reason to think they'd never see him again. This was the day when life was changed irrevocably, not just for the brothers Wang, but for all Big Chen Islanders. In episode three, A Morning of Comings and Goings, we find out why on that morning the brothers Wang, previously inseparable apart from the odd trading trip, were separated, and how life was turned upside down for all Big Chen Islanders. Episode 3. A Morning of Comings and Goings. We already know for sure what two of the three brothers Wang were doing on the morning of February the 10th, 1955. So far we, and they, have no reason to doubt what the third was up to. With dawn breaking, we left Small Wang in his wooden wheelbarrow, and Middle Wang stoking the fire to boil the breakfast rice porridge, slicing bits of pickles and chopping nine-storey pagoda basil. Duck egg omelette, seasoned with nine-storey pagoda basil, was Big Wang's favourite breakfast dish. Maybe they'd put out a bowl for him. Maybe this would be the day their big brother would return from his trip to the mainland. It was at this moment that they heard the banging of pots and pans and urgent shouts. They could make out one voice yelling in their local dialect, but someone else was shouting in a strange language that didn't even sound Chinese. Small Wang and Middle Wang shushed each other to try to make out what was being shouted. Moments later, a neighbor, red-faced and panicked, burst through the door. He was followed by a foreigner. Had Small Wang's wheelbarrow been facing the door, he might have recognized the stranger was wearing a U.S. Navy uniform. Not speaking any English, Small Wang would have had no idea that the American sailor was yelling at them to drop everything and head for the beach right now. Don't take anything with you. But there was no need, as their neighbor was yelling the same thing in their island dialect. Let's pause this scene for a moment. Let's leave the neighbor and the American sailor silhouetted in the kitchen doorway against the rising sun. 
Let's leave middle Wang crouched, open-mouthed by the fire. Let's leave small Wang in his wooden wheelbarrow for a moment more as he searches his brother's face for clues as to what was going on behind him. Unless you're an expert on post-liberation cross-straits history or U.S. Navy folklore, you're probably ready for a bit of background. Maybe you know all about Big Chen Island's unfortunate location. You might be familiar with Chairman Mao's mopping-up campaign following liberation. You may already be up to speed on why Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, now hunkered down in Taiwan, was known to his American allies as Generalissimo Kashmai-chek. If so, skip to the end of this episode. The rest of you may recall from episode one that Big Chen Island lies off the Chinese coast in the East China Sea. What I've yet to mention are the two critical facts that are about to change the lives of the brothers Wang and their 18,000 fellow islanders forever. The first concerns Big Chen Island's geography. It's around 400 kilometres due north of the northern tip of the island of Taiwan. The second key fact concerns Big Chen Island's history. When the 10th of February 1955 dawned, it was still nominally, ruled from Taiwan. I say nominally because no one had ever really ruled this remote island community of fishers, farmers, smugglers and pirates. Still, everywhere has to be part of somewhere else. For this island, in the middle of nowhere, that somewhere else was, by default, whoever was in charge of China. For the entire lives of the brothers Wang, this had meant the Chinese nationalists, led by their warlord commander, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek. But, six years before, on October 1st, 1949, Chairman Mao Zedong had stood at the Tiananmen Gate of Beijing's Forbidden City and announced to his peasant army the founding of the People's Republic of China, or PRC. This moment, known to the communists as Liberation, marked the end of a bitter and bloody civil war between Chairman Mao's communists and Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek's nationalists. By Liberation Day, China was on its knees. Before the civil war, it had endured 14 years of bitter and bloody occupation by Japan. After atomic bombs detonated over Hiroshima and Nagasaki had seen the Japanese off, The communists and nationalists, who'd suspended their civil war to form a temporary anti-Japanese alliance, went back at each other's throats. The communists, though outgunned, prevailed against the corrupt and weakened nationalists. Chiang Kai-shek and his nationalists fled to what was then the remote island province of Taiwan, initially to regroup. In Taiwan, the nationalists declared the foundation of the Republic of China, or ROC, as a government in exile. They set about defending their crowded new home, vowing to retake the mainland at the earliest opportunity. This was only conceivable with American support, but the ROC's prospects of taking mainland China back from the communists receded with every passing year. 
It wasn't that Washington didn't support them ideologically. This was the start of the Cold War, and anti-communist sentiment grew fiercer with every passing day. Indeed, that's why Washington sent American soldiers to a bitter and bloody civil war on China's northern border in 1950. Over the next three years, America, supporting the anti-communist South Koreans, had 40,000 of its troops killed and another 100,000 injured. Chairman Mao's communists, supporting the communist North, were estimated to have had close to a million casualties. Despite all this bloodshed, neither side prevailed and North and South Korea were created. By 1953, Cold War stalemates were starting to look a lot more attractive than hot war bloodbaths. After that disastrous proxy war in Korea, Washington had no stomach to get bogged down in a direct military conflict between the Chinese communists and Chinese nationalists. Thus, relations between the PRC and ROC settled into a stalemate too. America armed Taiwan defensively. US Navy Pacific Fleet warships patrolled the East China Sea. Washington supported the ROC diplomatically, And financially, it was around this time that bureaucrats in Washington started nicknaming Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek, Generalissimo Kashmai-shek. Meanwhile, on the mainland, Chairman Mao had been securing the borders of the new PRC, mopping up various pockets of resistance and establishing China's complex series of international borders was no simple task. For a start, from Vietnam in the south to Korea in the north, China has more land borders than any other country in the world. Then, in the post-war realignment, new neighbours kept appearing. India became independent, Pakistan was born, increasingly fractious relations with communist big brother the Soviet Union required the creation of a string of buffer states. Well, all this explains why life went on pretty much as usual on Big Chen Island for six years after liberation in 1949. Backwater status had given the island home of the Brothers Wang a charmed life. But by February 10, 1955, that life was hanging by a thread. Over the previous few weeks, unbeknownst to its inhabitants, Big Chen Island had become the focus of an increasingly high-profile diplomatic and military tug-of-war. With China's land borders now secure, Chairman Mao finally turned his attention to the East China Sea. He issued an ultimatum informing the world that the PRC's navy would liberate Big Chen Island on February the 10th, 1955. In Taiwan, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek responded with tremendously patriotic speeches. Smiting his bemedaled chest, the nationalist leader swore to defend the islands to the last drop of blood against the evil communist hooligans, etc., etc. Now, this kind of rhetoric goes down well in certain circles, but those circles tend not to include the circles whose blood will be spilt to the last drop, nor those circles who'll have to clear up the mess afterwards. Everyone, Washington, Beijing and Taipei, knew Big Chen Island was indefensible and that the islanders were doomed. 
Taiwan had spent the last six years fortifying and defending their own mini-buffer zones, two tiny series of islets called Jinmen and Mazu. These island groups were 100 kilometers from Taiwan, but within sight of the mainland coast. By 1955, Jinmen and Mazu were fully militarized. They bristled with anti-tank defenses, bunkers, anti-aircraft gun batteries. Artillery returned fire from regular bombardment from the mainland. Jinmen and Mazu were only retained at a massive financial, military and diplomatic cost that continues to this day. America was prepared to pay these costs for Jinmen and Mazu, but the notion that they do the same for Big Chen Island, 400 kilometers away, was ludicrous. The communist occupation of Big Chen Island was inevitable. By 1955, Chairman Mao, Chiang Kai-shek and the US Pacific Fleet Command were all plotting what they'd do when it happened. Chairman Mao simply announced the Chinese Navy would be liberating the islands on February 10th, 1955. The US Navy recommended a diplomatic retreat and offered to evacuate the inhabitants to Taiwan. Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek issued his stirring call to arms, urging the few thousand fishermen of Dachen Island to patriotically resist the warships of the PRC Navy. The days leading up to this deadline had involved increasingly desperate diplomatic manoeuvres involving Washington, Taiwan, the US Navy and the United Nations. As it became clear, the Generalissimo wasn't bluffing and was prepared to sacrifice the 18,000 islanders, including the Three Brothers Wang, these diplomatic manoeuvres reached fever pitch. With the clock ticking, was there time for a last-ditch plan that wouldn't involve the spilling of blood, gloriously patriotic or not? Now, throughout this, the islanders, with no radio mast or receiver, were entirely oblivious to the urgency of their predicament. Their local source of news was, after all, 16-year-old Small Wang, in his wooden wheelbarrow. He gleaned what he could from boats arriving from the mainland, but events were unfolding much too rapidly to rely on this method of communication. Big Chen Islanders had long been aware of their precarious status, of course, but their relaxed attitude was understandable. Distant governments had been bickering over who ruled them for as long as anyone could remember. In the meantime, those fish weren't going to catch themselves, so it had been business as usual. So it was that as dawn broke on February the 10th, 1955, the 18,000 Big Chen Islanders woke to find themselves surrounded by American warships, with smoke from the PRC warships steaming towards them on the western horizon. And that was why islanders were banging pots and pans to raise the alarm. That was why an American sailor had just barged into the house of the Brothers Wang, telling them everyone had to leave right now or become communist. That was why Middle Wang left a perfectly good breakfast uneaten. And that was why, 50 years later, in a sweltering it is, it's less interesting than the fact that they were married at all. I 
asked Mrs. Wang much less fascinating than how they met in the first place, the real which is way less astonishing than what Mr. How? Wang been doing. I asked amid all the chaos of that morning in 1955, with such steep, narrow, crowded paths leading down from their village. Had Mr. Wang managed to get the wheelbarrow containing his paralyzed little brother as far as the beach? In episode 4, The Wooden Wheelbarrow, with the destinies of the three brothers Wang suddenly taking different paths, we'll hear the story of Small Wang. Episode 4, The Wooden Wheelbarrow. You can imagine the mayhem, the panic on Big Chen Island as February the 10th, 1955 dawned. Instead of a few familiar fishing boats bobbing on the horizon, dozens of massive U.S. Navy warships loomed. The sky, until then the preserve of seabirds and songbirds, was now crisscrossed with aircraft from the 7th Fleet. Their thrums, whops and whooshes drowned out the birdsong and everything else. Making yourself heard meant shouting into ears. As he grabbed Small Wang's wooden wheelbarrow, Middle Wang felt the vibrations and downdrafts from the fighters and choppers penetrating their kitchen's thatched roof. Breakfast forgotten, Middle Wang wheeled Small Wang through the kitchen doorway. They reached the end of their garden path and tried to join the throng of panicked islanders now jamming the route down to the beach. Below, dawn was revealing convoys of landing craft already shuttling islanders from the beach to the waiting warships. Beyond the American warships, tendrils of black smoke rose on the western horizon. The PRC fleet was steaming towards them to liberate them with communism. As promised, right on schedule. Now, theoretically, any of the islanders could have chosen to stay. I should explain why none did. Ever since the founding of the Chinese Communist Party in 1921, the nationalists had been demonising them. The nationalists recognised the threat posed by Mao Zedong and his peasant army. Soon, they were fighting the communists for control of China, including deploying all the gruesome propaganda you might expect. The war against the Japanese occupation had led to a temporary truce, but the moment Emperor Hirohito made his historic first broadcast conceding unconditional surrender, the nationalist demonization of the red threat cranked up again in China. As the communists gained ground and the corrupt nationalist regime started to crumble, the anti-communist propaganda became increasingly hysterical and frenzied. This narrative had, of course, eventually made its way even to such a remote backwater as Big Chen Island. The communist version of events never did. So, for Small Wang, Middle Wang and the other thousands of Big Chen Islanders, the Long March was a glorious rout of the enemy, not a fable of heroic survival. It was the evil communists, not the corrupt nationalists, who ate babies and tortured grandmothers. Throw in mob instinct and general panic, and that's why every single Big Chen Islander dropped everything when presented with this existential deadline. As they headed for the waiting landing craft with only the clothes on their backs, they were all convinced that whatever fate awaited them, it would be better than life under communism. 
Landing craft by landing craft, Big Chen Island's population moved from thatched cottages on land to open decks at sea. Once aboard, they huddled wherever they could find space on the aircraft carriers, cruisers, destroyers and supply ships deployed to what the US Navy had dubbed Operation Pullback. The islanders were dumbstruck, numb, in limbo. Their circumstances had changed so rapidly and their futures were so uncertain they were only living in the moment. Their immediate concern was locating family members. If they didn't live in the same cottage, if they hadn't boarded the same landing craft, if they hadn't ended up on the same ship, had they made it off the island? If a child started to make reference to hiding things or burying things, parents quickly silenced them. No one knew how soon, if ever, they'd return to their ancestral homes, but it would be foolish to alert anyone else to the location of any last-minute hidden valuables. Now, these stories and voices of the islanders are hard to find. I'd not found any when I asked Mrs Wang to ask Mr Wang if he'd mind me recording his life story. I recorded Mr Wang back in Alabama, a year or two before he died and he was one of the youngest to have a reliable memory of this event. But let's leave the islanders for the moment and briefly consider Operation Pullback from the US Navy's point of view. Now, if you're interested in fact-checking this fictionalised true story and sifting the truth from the lies, this is the best place to start. The remarkable story of Big Chen Island is much better documented from the perspective of the US Navy than of the evacuees. But even so, it's quite obscure, even to keen military historians. They tend to favour stories about fleets launched, battles fought, ships sunk and sailors rescued, dreadnoughts, Jutland, D-Day, the USS Indianapolis, as told by the shark hunter Quint in the movie Jaws. Casualty-free civilian evacuations, on the other hand, are not staples of military history. Still, for anyone interested in this subgenre of naval mythology, there's no more remarkable example than Operation Pullback. At almost zero notice, with almost no planning, 132 boats and 400 aircraft were deployed to evacuate 18,000 civilians in a matter of hours. For details, check the internet. You'll find facts about the 10,000 nationalist soldiers, 4,000 guerrilla fighters and 40,000 tons of military equipment that were also evacuated, but which I have not mentioned until now. This is my story, and it's up to you to work out which bits are true, if you want to. So, there we go. There's our nod to what was arguably the finest moment in the history of the US Navy Pacific 7th Fleet. You'll find answers about that elsewhere. Here, though, is the only place you'll get the answer to the question I asked Mrs. Wang to ask her husband as the ceiling fan barely stirred the sultry summer air in that suburban Alabama living room. The wheelbarrow question. How? I asked. Amid all the chaos of that morning in 1955, 
with such steep, narrow, crowded paths leading down from their village, had Mr. Wang managed to get the wheelbarrow containing his paralysed little brother as far as the beach. It took a while to extract, as I explained in episode one, but here's his answer. The path was so packed with escaping islanders, there was simply no room to squeeze the wheelbarrow into the crowd. So Middle Wang and his younger brother Small Wang, paralysed in his wheelbarrow, had to wait. They grew increasingly desperate, as friends and neighbours shuffled past, clutching babies, holding infant hands, supporting elderly relatives, craning necks for the missing. Of course, everyone who passed by knew Small Wang and immediately recognised his dilemma, but willing though they were, there was nothing they could do to create the space necessary to insert the wooden wheelbarrow. Even if they had, the wheelbarrow would almost certainly be toppled in the melee, tipping paraplegic small wang down the steep slopes, helpless to break his fall. So, for hours, middle wang and small wang had to endure the helpless shrugs of their fellow islanders as they passed by, crammed together in their desperate escape to the landing craft on the beach. All the while, the plumes of smoke from the communist warships grew blacker and closer. So it was that Middle Wang and Small Wang were the last in the queue to leave Big Chen Island. Now, the number of evacuees usually quoted in the US naval histories is 18,000. It must be an approximation, but if it's accurate, Middle Wang was the 18,000th Big Chen Islander to be evacuated. What about Small Wang? Was he the 17,999th? Now we come to the first big twist in the stories of the three brothers Wang. By the time Middle Wang, right at the back of the queue, had manoeuvred the wheelbarrow to the bottom of the path and onto the beach, there was no one else on the beach and the last U.S. sailor was in the process of boarding the last landing craft. Now, had Big Wang been with them, the two elder brothers wouldn't have needed to exchange so much as a word, even a glance. They would have executed their trademark butt-kissing move, plunged through the surf, and had Small Wang on board in the same amount of time it would have taken them both to get there themselves. But Big Wang wasn't here this time. Small Wang was too heavy for Middle Wang to carry alone. Middle Wang and Small Wang screamed to get the sailor's attention, and when he turned round, they saw the panic in his eyes. They had no idea what he was shouting back at them in his strange language, but his gestures at the approaching communist warships about to liberate Big Chen Island on schedule needed no interpreting. Middle Wang, only 18 years old himself, looked at his 16-year-old brother. Small Wang, incapable of gesture but wise beyond his years, simply pursed his lips towards the departing landing craft and nodded. When the communist warships arrived, after Middle Wang had become the 18,000th and final islander to make it to a US Navy warship, they discovered only one living person left on Big Chen Island. There, on the beach, with the smoke from the island's abandoned breakfast stoves rising behind him, 
was small wang in his wooden wheelbarrow. For nearly all their short lives, the three brothers Wang had been inseparable. None of them had known it at the time, but the moment Big Wang sailed for the mainland two months before was the moment his destiny became irrevocably separated from those of his brothers. This moment on the beach, when small Wang, in his wooden wheelbarrow, watched middle Wang, blinded by tears, splash through the surf to leap onto the last departing landing craft was the moment their two paths diverged. In episode five, we find out what happened to Big One. Episode five, wrong time, wrong place. For an eldest brother, Big Wang hasn't featured much in this story so far. Last time we heard, he was popping over to the mainland in his little cargo boat, laden with dried squid, hoping to earn some cash shuttling goods between the ports that lay over the horizon from his island home. It was his first big solo trip, but everyone, including Big Wang himself, was confident he'd be fine. So, in December 1954, Big Wang returned the waves of his younger brothers on the pier before steering into the waves of the East China Sea. They slapped against the wooden hull of Big Wang's little boat. The little harbour on Big Chen Island soon disappeared behind his wake. Big Wang had made the trip dozens of times before with his father and uncle, so he knew the routine. The crossing was uneventful. Big Wang tied up at the same dock at the usual fishing town and went ashore to find the familiar traders who'd bid so enthusiastically for Big Chen Island dried squid last trip. The dock was deserted, which was a first. The market, too, was deserted, which was downright weird. The wooden huts that served as the wholesalers' offices were shuttered, when Big Wang shouted a greeting, echoes were his only reply. Puzzled, Big Wang walked through the market square to the warehouses beyond. There, he found a small group of serious-looking people standing over a table. They wore dusty blue and green uniforms with red stars on their caps. They were examining sheets of paper covered with numbers, writing and red wax seals. Now, had Big Wang been able to read, he would have noticed the freshly painted signs on the warehouse doors no longer bore the names of the merchants. Had Big Wang thought to make discreet inquiries, he would have learned the new characters painted there proclaimed them to have been commandeered by the local collective to store their produce. Had Big Wang known the uniformed officials were debating how to implement the latest personnel demands from Beijing, he would have turned on his heel, walked directly back to the dock and sailed straight home to his brothers on Big Chen Island. Instead, Big Wang greeted the stony-faced group with a cheery wave and asked if they'd like to buy some dried squid. What Big Wang didn't realise 
was that the China he'd landed at this time was a very different China from the one he'd experienced on his previous trips to the mainland. Or rather, the changes that had been spreading over the rest of China had finally percolated to his backyard. It was now five years since liberation. The chaos of war was now quelled. Refugees were back home. China's borders were secure, almost. Chairman Mao was directing mopping-up operations that within two months would leave small Wang as Big Chen Island's only inhabitant. But the new regime had much grander ambitions. China was starting to implement communism. The new China was already two years into the Chinese Communist Party's first five-year plan. It was finally filtering down to the remoter fringes of the People's Republic. The changes were radical, but after what they were now calling a century of humiliation, they were, broadly speaking, welcomed. Generations of Chinese had lived through opium wars, colonial humiliation, the fall of the last Qing emperor, the failed republic, warlordism, even more brutal colonial occupation, a world war, and yet more, even more devastating civil war. By now, they were more than willing to try something new. For Big Wang, approaching the group of uniformed officials was his introduction to communism, and it changed his life forever. For a start, he was told his dried squid was to be immediately commandeered in the service of the people and his boat. After glancing at each other, the serious-looking officials asked Big Wang for his name. They wrote it down on a piece of paper. They told Big Wang to press his thumb into a little dish of sticky red wax and mark his thumbprint beside his name. He was now, they told him, formally registered as a member of the local collective. They had another piece of paper already prepared, the one they'd been discussing before his arrival. Name, wax, thumbprint. And with that, their little administrative problem, the tricky quota Beijing had just sent them, was solved. The Red Army, so badly depleted after the Korean War, needed new recruits. Beijing had commanded them to supply a volunteer from their collective, and Big Wang had just been volunteered. Thus did Big Wang, who'd only popped over to the mainland to sell some dried squid, spent his next four decades as a soldier in the People's Liberation Army. He never set foot in a boat. But, appropriately for a Big Chen Islander, Big Wang was always on the periphery, always at the margins, as China's communist experiment progressed. Big Wang was at boot camp in Chongqing when news of the liberation of Big Chen Island was announced through the parade ground loudspeakers. He tried to find out details, but this was 1955, and he was 1,700 kilometres from home. Over the years, he heard rumours Chairman Mao had transplanted a nearby mainland village to repopulate his island home. Every man, woman and child, every buffalo, pig and chicken. But by this time, Big Wang was patrolling border fences on the Burmese border. 
1959, he was sent to quell Tibetans who didn't want to be liberated. In the early 60s, he patrolled the Yalu River, wielding huge binoculars to spot North Koreans swimming south across the border looking for a less brutal place to live. From 1966 to 1976, Big Wang saw out the Cultural Revolution defending China's remotest western borders with Kyrgyzstan, Tajikistan, Kazakhstan and Afghanistan. In 1979, he was deployed back down south and lost an eye during the Sino-Vietnamese War. In the 80s, as India and Pakistan started getting fussy about their borders, one-eyed Big Wang found himself back in the mountains. By the time Big Wang had heard about the suppression of anti-revolutionary students in Tiananmen Square in 1989, it was all over and the crackdown was in full swing. In 1995... At the age of 60, after 40 years serving in the People's Liberation Army, Big Wang was allowed to retire. He received his demobilization papers and a small pension in Khohot, Inner Mongolia. With nowhere else to go, Big Wang thought he might as well go home. In episode 6, we discover what happened to Small Wang in his wheelbarrow on the beach. Episode 6 The Boy in the Wheelbarrow What of Small Wang? We left him on the beach, having urged Middle Wang to save himself, watching his weeping brother catched the last landing craft off Big Chan Island. There was, of course, literally nothing he could do. He'd long developed a raucous squawk to deter rapacious seabirds from pecking out his eyes, a danger he faced as a paraplegic with no one else around. The last US Navy warship steamed away, its decks smothered with his fellow islanders. The last fighters and helicopters returned to their carriers. The birds reoccupied the skies. At first, their occasional squawks and calls along with the waves on the beach were the only sounds around. After the deafening maelstrom that had enveloped the island since dawn, the silence seemed more silent. By and by, chickens in nearby coops started to demand their morning feed. Pigs, too, started to emerge from overnight shelters, wondering what had happened to their breakfast. Donkeys and buffalo began to bray and low, their rumbling stomachs an indication only one human remained on Big Chen Island. That human was Small Wang. Now, he possessed many gifts and skills, but moving anything other than his head, eyes and tongue were not among them. All he could do was watch. Small Wang had been left facing the sea, so what he watched were the black tendrils emerging from the funnels of the communist warships turning into 
black ribbons, then black plumes, and eventually thick black columns of sooty exhaust. The columns reverted to tendrils. The warships weighed anchor and started deploying their landing craft. Small Wang noted the different design of the communist vessels, the different body language of their sailors. Now, the only military sailors he'd met before that morning had been the crew of nationalist patrol vessels, no more than motor launches with machine guns, really. They'd occasionally stroll by the brothers' garden on shore leave, lean on the fence and chat to the boy in the wheelbarrow. Now, in the space of one morning, Small Wang had been able to compare the operational manoeuvres of the Pacific 7th Fleet of the United States Navy with the East Sea Fleet of the People's Liberation Army Navy. The huge gulf in firepower, size and technology was obvious to a child. But what about the crew? The American sailors, jabbering away in their strange language and clearly as stressed by the imminent deadline as the islanders they were evacuating, had nevertheless been efficient and professional and, given the circumstances, friendly. Small Wang had absorbed all that nationalist propaganda about the communists eating babies and torturing grandparents. Though only 16, experience and natural intelligence had taught him to treat this with more than a grain of salt. Recently, Small Wang had asked to spend some mornings parked at the back of the rickety shack that constituted Big Chen Island's only school. Of course, Small Wang couldn't join the other children when they practised writing in chalk on slates, or, for those without slates, writing with their index fingers on their outstretched palms. But Small Wang didn't need to. Small Wang remembered most things first time. On the other hand, Small Wang was able to parrot Teacher Li's pronunciation of the official Beijing dialect that was China's common language, Mandarin. In fact, he was much better at this than any of the other students. Small Wang was a quick study. Now, Teacher Li only had a high school education himself, but he was an amiable, mild and gentle man. Few of his pupils had much time to pursue studies outside the classroom, and not that many had the energy or capacity to achieve much inside it. Teacher Li was more than happy to share what learning he had with this strange pupil. After the other children had gone home for lunch, he'd stay behind to chat with Small Wang while they waited for one of his brothers to come and retrieve him. Small Wang began telling his brothers later and later pick-up times. If they suspected this, they never let on, and Teacher Lee didn't seem to mind either. Before long, Small Wang had got Teacher Lee to fill their ever-expanding waiting time by reading him the classical histories of bygone dynasties aloud. As Small Wang lay in his wooden wheelbarrow, concentrating on the words and storing them away for future reference, he reached his own conclusions. Some he shared with Teacher Li. Small Wang would remark on how history was written by the victors. He'd note that following periods of disaster and chaos, oppressed people were more ready for big changes. He'd observe how corrupt old rulers painted upstart rivals in the worst possible light. 
other thoughts, Small Wang thought prudent to keep to himself. Like the bucketful of Big Chen Island sea salt with which he was now taking all that nationalist propaganda about communists eating babies and torturing grandmothers. Now, in his wooden wheelbarrow on the beach, Small Wang was about to come face to face with his first actual communists. Would they shoot him? Would they garland him with flowers? Would they ignore him? The first landing craft, packed with blue uniformed sailors, roared away from the flagship in a cloud of blue smoke. As it approached the beach, Small Wang began to make out the red stars on the sailors' caps. A minute later, the first communist set foot on Big Chen Island. He scanned the deserted beach and the deserted slopes above. He walked up to the wheelbarrow and loomed over Small Wang. Small Wang reckoned the stripes on his sleeve must mean he was some kind of officer. Are you the only person here? asked the officer. He spoke in standard Mandarin, slowly and loudly, as if addressing a mentally retarded peasant child. I certainly appear to be officer, replied Small Wang, in perfect Mandarin. Welcome to Big Chen Island. Episode 7. The Circumnavigating Cook For days after he'd abandoned Small Wang in his wooden wheelbarrow on the beach, Middle Wang spoke to no one. A few dozen evacuees, his fellow passengers on the last landing craft to flee the island, had witnessed his agonizing split-second decision. They joined the 18,000 other islanders crammed aboard the 131 U.S. Navy vessels deployed in Operation Pullback. Now they steamed towards Taiwan, putting as much distance as possible between them and the PRC fleet on the horizon, about to liberate their now-abandoned home. Their lives turned upside down in one morning, the evacuees started to reassemble into their family and clan units. Who was on this ship? Could they see any familiar faces on the other ships? Middle Wang, however, was alone. There were friends and relatives who knew him well, of course, but they also knew how tight a relationship the orphaned three brothers Wang had had for the past 16 years. Word soon spread. No one knew what to say to Middle Wang, sitting alone on the bare metal deck, hands covering his face. Usually ebullient and chatty, Middle Wang remained a zombie for many days. He remained silent, refusing all food throughout the journey to Taiwan. The evacuees disembarked to a mixed and muted reception. Now, you may have expected a hero's welcome, but they didn't, and just as well. You see, until it had become the nationalists' bolt hole in 1949, following the communist victory, Taiwan had itself been a backwater. Before 1949, 
Taiwan was a laid-back island province on the margins of China. Its six million residents were a mix of ethnic groups, speaking their own dialects, minding their own business. After defeat by the communists, Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek and more than two million mainland nationalist officials, troops and others associated with his rotten regime fled to the island province. Now, they said Taiwan would be their temporary base just while they regrouped to take back the mainland, but the truth was, it was a rout. By February the 12th, 1955, Taiwan was still struggling to cope with the influx of two million extra mainlanders, so they weren't exactly delighted at the arrival of another fleetful. Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek posed for a photo with the American commander of the evacuation fleet and said something stirring, patriotic and anti-communist. He then dispatched the Big Chen Islanders to a refugee centre while he worked out what on earth to do with another 18,000 people on an already crammed island. Now, the refugee centre was in Ilan County, which happened to be located in the northeast of Taiwan, which was as close as you could get to Big Chen Island. With 400 kilometres of the East China Sea between them and home, now occupied by the communists, this proximity hardly mattered, but maybe it played its role in sparking Middle Wang's gradual recovery. Now, Middle Wang takes life as it comes. He's not the type to indulge in much self-analysis, to try to influence events or ponder his own actions. He's more inclined to keep a weather eye, steer into the waves and plot his best course, just like his big brother did on that fateful day when he set off to sell some dried squid on the mainland. Did seeing the East China Sea every day and thinking that this stretch of water was all that lay between him and his home and his brothers play its role in rousing Middle Wang from his slump? Well, if he can't say, how can we? In any case, as the days passed, Middle Wang's despair lifted. First, he started eating again. A few more days, and he began responding to greetings. A few more, and he was initiating conversations, then smiling, then laughing. Then he cracked his first joke. When Middle Wang started cooking again, his islander friends reckoned he'd be okay. Maybe the fact that everyone else in the refugee camp was in the same position helped diminish his trauma. None of the other 17,999 islanders had had to make quite such an impossible choice in a split second, losing a brother in the process. Now, they all found themselves, well, not in the same boat as fishermen, they would probably have preferred that, but in the same predicament, at least. Remember, Middle Wang was only 18 years old, so he was blessed with the resilience of youth. Throughout those weeks of recovery, Middle Wang had been oblivious to the diplomatic crisis triggered by the arrival of the Big Chen Island evacuees. As his spirit was restored, he began to follow the rumours. There was little else to do in their Elan County limbo apart from Cook. There was much rumour to follow, so here's a recap of the diplomatic timeline before and after the evacuation of Big Chen Island. Chairman Mao announces he'll liberate Big Chen Island on February the 10th. Generalissimo Chiang Kai-shek announces the islanders will fight to the death 
Horrified, the US Navy scrambles to evacuate all 18,000 islanders in the nick of time. Chiang Kai-shek tells the United Nations Taiwan has no space for the islanders. The United Nations scrambles to find countries looking for immigrants, like Brazil. It negotiates a relocation package that includes a bag of gold for each islander. Hang on, says Chiang Kai-shek, did you say a bag of gold? Each? Maybe I can squeeze them in here in Taiwan, after all. An office like that, in case you'd been wondering, is why in Washington circles the Generalissimo was known as Cash My Check. The consequence of all this diplomacy for Middle Wang and his fellow evacuees was that they were eventually resettled in small groups around Taiwan. Their immediate crisis may have been resolved, but for Big Chen Islanders, being parachuted into various already crowded communities around Taiwan was far from ideal. As fishermen, smugglers and pirates operating from a remote island at the fringes of any jurisdiction, they'd never felt any particularly strong political affiliation to the nationalists or any other rulers. And don't forget their dialect, which no one could understand. The evacuees really may as well have been sent to Brazil for all the mutual incomprehension they faced in their daily lives. And Taiwan held no existing social or family ties for them. The Big Chen Islanders didn't know anyone there, and no one in Taiwan was particularly interested in getting to know them. If this seems heartless now, bear in mind the Taiwan they landed in wasn't the prosperous, cohesive entity it is today. 1950s Taiwan was a chaotic melting pot of different Chinese cultures, dialects, ethnicities and communities, living under daily fear of invasion. In 1949, their population had expanded by a third almost overnight when those fleeing nationalists from all over mainland China had made Taiwan their refuge. And overlaid onto all this, the uncertainty of the emerging Cold War. No one knew how that was going to turn out. So, everyone in Taiwan already had their own problems. Now this may all explain why so many Big Chen Islanders chose to leave Taiwan so quickly, once Chiang Kai-shek had cashed their checks. Alienation and exclusion pushed the evacuees to leave Taiwan, but there were also positive forces pulling them. They were sailors. Boats always needed experienced sailors. Then... There was America, vast, full of empty space and opportunity, always in need of hard-working immigrants, and diplomatically well-disposed to their anti-communist ally, facing off with Red China across the Taiwan Straits. Some evacuees emigrated directly to the United States, where they established mini Big Chen Island communities. Their dialect, common culture and unique experience meant they stuck together and looked out for each other. Once the first pioneers had established a beachhead somewhere in America, it was easier for other islanders to join them. Across the US, often in quite random, unexpected places, not just the big port cities you might expect, little pockets of Big Chen Islanders gathered, supported each other and found each other jobs. Many of the jobs the islanders found themselves specialising in involved cooking. Now, how and why this happened is something of a mystery. In 2015, a professor, writing in the Journal of the Culinary Historians of New York, tried to trace the origins of the evacuees' association with cooking. 
He couldn't nail the exact time and place it started, but here's a quote from his article about the culinary consequences. Many former residents of the Dachan archipelago immigrated to New York in search of employment opportunities, and many of these immigrants, after learning how to cook, became highly competent chefs. Taiwanese immigrants, due to their commercial competence and ingenuity, played a pivotal role in promoting and selling Chinese cuisine, broadly defined, before the huge flood of mainland Chinese immigrants began in 1980. So, there's another twist to this story. These few thousand Cold War evacuees from a semi-tropical island revolutionized American Chinese food culture. But let's return to Middle Wang restless in 1950s Taiwan, transplanted to his new home but setting down no roots. Now, Middle Wang is an energetic, optimistic, ambitious young man with itchy feet, no family to support or be supported by, and the world at his feet. Should he join his friends, signing up as crew for international shipping lines? Should he become a chef? Well, Middle Wang did both. He signed up to become a cargo ship cook. For the next 30 years, Middle Wang rode the high seas, below decks, in the galley, feeding the international crews of the world's shipping vessels. He remained resolutely monolingual, speaking only his native dialect. Big Chen Islanders travelled in packs, so he always had a few shipmates he could talk to. For his other shipmates, Middle Wang's shared language became food. Feeding crew from the Indian subcontinent, Southeast Asia, South America, Africa and Europe, Middle Wang educated them about Chinese food, and they taught him how to adapt it to their tastes. Now try to name a port Middle Wang hasn't been to. I tried to, in that sweltering Alabama living room when interviewing him, but failed. He may have seldom left the docked ship, let alone ventured far from it, but Mr. Wang, as I then knew him, had been everywhere. Rio, Busan, Rotterdam, Klang, Portsmouth, Yokohama, Dar es Salaam, Aden, Galveston. Now, you know most of the rest of his story and can now guess what remains. After calling time on his sailing days, Middle Wang joined some fellow Big Chen Islanders who'd wound up in small-town Alabama. They found him a job in a kitchen. Mrs. Wang found a husband in him. They settled down, raised children, enjoyed grandchildren. Middle Wang, now Mr. Wang, loved his wife, and while he had officially retired, he still loved cooking so much he'd often work in the kitchens of Mrs. Wang's expanding chain of buffet restaurants for free. But even for such a happy-go-lucky character, for his whole life Middle Wang had carried one nagging question. What had happened to his two brothers? In episode 8, The Man in the Wheelchair, we find out what happened to small one. Episode 8, The Man in the Wheelchair. You're up to speed with Big Wang, heading home after 40 years on China's borders, after being press-ganged into joining the People's Liberation Army at the age of 20. You're also up to date with Middle Wang, 
his thirty years in ship's galleys and twenty in Alabama's kitchens following his traumatic departure from Big Chen Island at the age of eighteen. But before we find out if they ever met again, what of Small Wang, who we last heard of on February the 10th, 1955, addressing the first communist to set foot on Big Chen Island at the age of 16? You may remember the People's Liberation Army officer had just asked him if he was the only person left on the island, and he'd replied, from his wooden wheelbarrow on the beach, in fluent Mandarin. You may also remember that as that officer stepped off his landing craft, Small Wang had no idea if he would be shot, garlanded, or ignored. Well, you'll be relieved to hear he wasn't shot. You may not be surprised to hear he wasn't garlanded. But I hope you'll be pleased to hear he wasn't ignored. Small Wang was, however, at first, treated with great suspicion. The communist soldiers inspected his wheelbarrow carefully for booby traps and explosives. Such things were conceivable to Korean War veterans. They kept Small Wang under armed guard until they'd finished a thorough sweep of the island. As its soldiers made its way around Big Chen Island's every nook and cranny, the People's Liberation Army liberated peckish hens hungry pigs, cows with full udders, but no other humans. The liberators found perfectly good breakfasts, smouldering fires in stoves. They even found valuable trophies, tools and trinkets left behind, at least anything that couldn't be fitted into a pocket. Aware of Big Chen Island's reputation as a haven for smugglers and pirates, the liberators looked for signs of recently disturbed earth near any dwellings or recently removed floorboards or panels inside them. Maybe it had been too well concealed, but there was no hastily hidden treasure to be found. All this came as a total surprise. The troops and sailors had been told they'd be liberating 18,000 oppressed fishermen and peasants from tyranny. The younger recruits had expected this to mean arriving at beaches filled with cheering locals. More experienced veterans thought they might encounter some guerrilla resistance. But none of the liberating army soldiers and navy sailors imagined they'd be greeted by a 16-year-old paraplegic in a wheelbarrow and no one else. They had, of course, seen the furious activity of the U.S. Navy fleet in their binoculars, but not close enough to see its purpose. They'd planned for some kind of naval phony war with the U.S. Navy. PLA military strategists, familiar with American doctrine from the Korean War, had warned them to prepare for some kind of show of defiance by the nationalists and their American capitalist running dogs. That's why the liberating fleet had steamed so slowly, sending up only slender tendrils of smoke from their funnels as they approached the Big Chan Island archipelago. Chairman Mao, after all, had specified only a date for Big Chen Island's liberation, not a time. They were in no hurry. Their task was to liberate, not to engage in unnecessary direct military conflict with the world's biggest nuclear superpower. 
The Army and Navy officers, peering through their binoculars, had interpreted all those American boats and planes and helicopters as bit players in some kind of Cold War theatre, a final act of defiance. Given the inevitability of their victory, the Communists were more than happy to bide their time. They set their engines to dead slow, to watch the show, ready to crank them up to full steam ahead the moment it was over. Now, had the US Navy commander of Operation Pullback known this, he may not have issued his order for immediate retreat. Had he not issued this order, that last US sailor pushing off the last US landing craft may not have been quite so panicked. Had he not been quite so panicked, he might have been able to help Middle Wang lift Small Wang safely aboard. But he didn't. He was. And we'll never know. This is what happens in conflict, even when the war is cold. Imperfect information, seat-of-the-pants decisions, bluff and counter-bluff. The fates of individuals and entire nations rest on thousands of domino-effect split-second judgments. Soldiers are told to expect the unexpected, but once they landed on Big Chen Island, what these soldiers discovered was not a scenario for which they'd strategized. Great mounds of provisions, intended to impress and win the hearts and minds of the grateful proletariat, had been rapidly deployed. Having found the island heartless and mindless, these now lay along the sand, a row of beached whales. The sapper units which had sprinted off to sweep the island now ambled back, reporting not a single booby trap, bunker or bolt hole. The liberating soldiers, braced for action when they jumped onto the beach, now lounged on the beach as the morning sun warmed the island. Some, responding to the increasingly insistent calls of the livestock, were feeding the chickens and pigs, even milking the cows. Now, at this point, the intelligence officers interrogated Small Wang to account for this, the only scenario they hadn't prepared for. At first, their tone was aggressive and suspicious. Small Wang simply described what he'd seen, accurately and frankly. He'd seen a lot. His descriptions were very accurate, so before long, his questioners conceded his frankness too. Interrogation gave way to conversation, and soon to admiration of this 16-year-old paralysed kid in the wheelbarrow who spoke such clear Mandarin. They asked Small Wang about hiding places of smuggled goods and pirate booty, but with the same candour and sincerity, he replied he knew nothing about that kind of thing. A few days later, nearly 2,000 kilometres to the north, in the heart of the capital Beijing, in the main bedroom at Zhongnanghai, the former forbidden city home of the emperor, piles of books of classical Chinese literature and history were temporarily removed from the enormous bed where the chairman now spent most of his time. A map of the East China coastline was spread out on the wrinkled bedsheets, a briefing delivered. Officials waited for the chairman's decision. Chairman Mao nodded solemnly, rolled over to the map, and prodded a pudgy index finger at a particular village before dismissing the officials and calling for a massage. Spectacular consequences of casual finger-pointing are among the perks of dictatorship. 
A few weeks later, the entire population of the mainland village on which his pudgy finger had landed and all their worldly goods were transplanted to Big Chen Island. Big Chen Island's new residents soon found themselves relying on its only remaining resident as they made their lives in their new home. From his wooden wheelbarrow, soon upgraded to a proper wheelchair, the oracle of Big Chen Island would tell them which crops would thrive and where to plant them, where the weather came from and what to look out for, where the squid mate, where the sharks lurk, where the crabs hide. One by one, the new islanders would call by to consult Big Chen Island's mobile library. One by one, Small Wang would lend out the thousands of precious nuggets of local know-how he'd secreted and organised in his remarkable brain. Carers were assigned to look after this precious resource round the clock. The Oracle of Big Chen Island was given the choice of wherever he wanted to live on the island. Small Wang chose the simple stone cottage where he and his brothers had grown up and instructed his carers to keep it exactly as he remembered it. The only addition was his wooden wheelbarrow, now standing at the end of the garden by the path leading down to the beach. He'd instructed his carers on how to plant it with nine-storey pagoda basil, Big Wang's favourite herb, the one Middle Wang had been chopping that morning of February the 10th, 1955, when their kitchen door burst open, the American sailor started shouting, and the brothers' paths parted. As years passed, the New Islanders settled into their new home. They needed to consult the Big Chen Island Encyclopedia in Small Wang's head less frequently, but they'd still stop by to seek his advice on personal matters or opinions on events. Some of them, after a shifty glance to make sure no one else could hear, would ask him if he knew where the treasure was buried. Small Wang always gave the same answer he'd given to his interrogators when they'd asked him, sounding just as candid and sincere. So, for a paraplegic who'd feared his first encounter with communists might leave him with a bullet in his amazing brain, this was about as good a life as he could have dreamed of. Small Wang's disability meant he was never going to be at the centre of things. He'd always occupy the fringes of society, but at that precarious moment on the beach at the age of 16, he could hardly have expected his life would have turned out like this. His lungs, however, never strong, were not getting any stronger. As the 1950s ended, then the 60s, the 70s and the 80s, Small Wang's lungs became weaker and weaker, his world smaller and smaller. He'd ask his carers to park his wheelchair at the end of the garden path by the wheelbarrow, now bursting with a fine crop of nine-storey pagoda basil. He'd sit there for hours, as if waiting for someone to come. Not just someone, of course, but two people in particular. In episode 9, Return to Big Chern Island 1, we find out if Small Wang ever did see either of those two particular people before he died. Episode 9, Return to Big Chern Island 1.
Now we're caught up with the lives of the three brothers Wang after their paths diverged around 1955, let me tell you what Mrs Wang told me, Mr Wang told her, happened next. Now this is the crucial climax of this story. I wanted to double-check all the details, so I've just checked that videotape of the interview I made in Alabama in 2001. I'd forgotten there's an annoying gap at this point. What with the Alabama heat, me getting so absorbed by Mr. Wang's story, and Mr. Wang starting to get tearful as he approached the story of his return to Big Chen Island, I failed to spot the tape had run out. Now, I can't say for sure how much of the story I missed recording. At the time, as I fumbled a second tape into the little digital camera, I took a guess and asked Mr. Wang to repeat the last couple of answers. But it's never the same second time round. Repeating the same thing you just said is no fun. People tend to skip over a lot of the detail, and the translation I got on the tape from Mrs. Wang was a pretty sketchy summary. This means some of what follows is from my memory and the notes I took afterwards, once we'd all had a chance to recover. It was quite an emotional morning. By now, Mr. Wang, Mrs. Wang and myself, each for our own reasons, were eager to get to the final part of the story. Mr. Wang, because he'd visited Big Chen Island a couple of months before and seemed keen to return there in his mind as quickly as possible. Mrs. Wang, because she was tiring and I think was also worried about the toll this story was taking on the emotional and excitable Mr. Wang. He died in his sleep of a heart attack a year later. So maybe Mr. Wang was already on medication for a heart condition and Mrs. Wang hadn't told me. As for me, I, like I hope you, was itching to hear the end of the story. From what I'd already heard, it promised to be the most extraordinary part of the entire narrative. The tape picks up the detailed narrative as Mr Wang describes climbing the same steep, narrow path he pushed little Wang down almost 50 years to the day previously. But before we follow him up the steps, I should briefly explain how he'd got there. Now, as you'll know from the news, the People's Republic of China and the Republic of China, more commonly known as Taiwan, are still very much around. Their dispute, stretching back to 1949, has evolved from who should be in charge of China to whether Taiwan is now an independent state, but it still remains very much unresolved. In many ways, it's a bigger geopolitical tinderbox than ever. But ironically, this remarkable final chapter in the story of the three brothers Wang was made possible by the gradual warming of relations between the PRC and Taiwan over recent decades. After the Cold War ended, both sides of the Taiwan Straits started to focus more on economic development than ideological differences. Not exactly make love not war, but definitely make money not war. Direct postal services were restored, allowing families to contact each other for the first time in decades. That's what made Middle Wang think of addressing his first letter to his old address on Big Chen Island. A few years later, once other Big Chen Island friends had alerted him to the new house numbering system the communists had introduced, Middle Wang received his first reply. 
it was from Big Wang. Now, despite his own disability, his missing eye, Big Wang was now living with and caring for their younger brother. On the interview tape, Mr. Wang disappears from the screen for a minute or so at this point. He returns with a biscuit tin full of the letters he'd received from his brothers on Big Chan Island. He holds that first letter from Big Wang up to the camera, his eyes welling up again. Now, Middle Wang had learned to read in later life, but still only spoke his dialect. So, on the tape, it's Mrs. Wang who reads it aloud. In the letter, Big Wang describes his return to Big Chan Island in 1995. Forty years after he'd left Big Chan Island for the mainland, Big Wang returned to the same little wooden jetty. Instead of the cash earned from his dried squid... Big Wang carried a battered canvas army backpack containing a change of clothes, his demobilization documents, his army pension, and hope in his heart. Everything was modernized, but recognizable. Electric power lines now formed a spider's web over the roads and paths. Mopeds and motorized rickshaws now outnumbered donkey carts and bicycles, but Big Wang knew where he was. He had no problem following the same road along the beach. He found the steep, narrow path leading up to their old cottage. When he reached the garden gate, he recognised the wooden wheelbarrow, now full of nine-storey pagoda basil. A few moments later, he recognised the wizened figure of his brother, small one, slumped in the wheelchair beside it. The rest of the biscuit tin contained the dozens of handwritten letters that arrived in Alabama over the following years, as the brothers caught up on the previous decades since they'd been separated. These peter out around 2001, when Big Chen Island got international dial telephones. In every letter and every call, Big Wang urged Middle Wang to visit as soon as possible. Each communication included an update on Small Wang's health, and it was never good news. Many obstacles stood between Middle Wang, now an American citizen, and his brothers on Big Chan Island, located in a militarily sensitive zone. Cross-Straits relationships steadily improved over the 90s and early 2000s, but progress was anything but smooth. From time to time, some diplomatic incident would set things in reverse, ratcheting up tensions beyond sabre-rattling to launching mainland missiles that dropped just short of Taiwan. But the tensions gradually receded, and one by one, Middle Wang's fellow evacuees in exile in Alabama and elsewhere made it to China, where they'd meet their relatives on the mainland. Families were being reunited. After decades... Family bonds were being renewed, new ones forged between generations born after 1955. The brothers Wang looked into meeting in Shanghai, but by the time middle Wang could make the trip, small Wang was too frail to travel. Finally, in 2001, two months before I recorded the interview, middle Wang joined a small group of Big Chen Island evacuees returning to their home, half a century after their frenzied, panicked, last-minute evacuation. You now know the stories they shared with each other. You've heard how these three brothers, after growing up on the edge of a China in chaos, 
were separated and then spent decades not knowing each other's fates. Big Wang, patrolling the borders of China as it isolated itself, then reconnected with the world. Middle Wang, cooking up international solidarity in the galleys of boats docking at the edges of the oceans. Small Wang, connecting Big Chen Island's new residents to their new home at the margins of the East China Sea. So, let's leave them, toasting each other with home-distilled sorghum liquor, snacking on Big Chen Island dried squid, eating duck egg omelette with nine-storey pagoda basil harvested from small Wang's wooden wheelbarrow. First they, then I, and now you too, can wonder at their bad luck at being parted and their even more extraordinary good fortune at being reunited. In episode 10, Return to Big Chan Island 2, we find out what really happened. Episode 10, Return to Big Chan Island 2. Did you like that final scene? with the three brothers Wang toasting each other with home-distilled sorghum liquor, snacking on dried squid and savouring duck egg omelette, seasoned with nine-storey pagoda basil, grown in small Wang's wooden wheelbarrow. I was quite pleased with it too. It's nice to tie everything up so neatly. It happens so rarely in real life. Did you find it a little too neat and tidy? Okay, how about this then? Big Wang did meet his youngest brother again, but not for long. By 1995, when Big Wang returned to Big Chan Island after 40 years as a soldier, Small Wang's lungs were already failing. Reunited at last, Big Wang made the most of the six months he was to have with his youngest brother. As Small Wang's spirit ebbed away, their conversation took on an increasing urgency. At first, they told each other about their lives apart. As Small Wang's final wheezing breath approached, and they reckoned their remaining time to be measured in weeks and then days, the brothers started to reminisce about their lives together. But by the time Small Wang breathed his last and was buried in the garden in the wooden wheelbarrow as he'd wanted, all they talked about was their brother. A decade later, when Middle Wang finally made it back to the island, Big Wang was in poor health himself. He'd lost the sight in his remaining eye, and now his mind was starting to fail him. The group of Big Chen Island evacuees that Middle Wang arrived with was not a typical tour group. They roamed their former island home from time to time, knocking on the doors of places they once lived. Startled homeowners would open the doors, open-mouthed as their predecessors from half a century before introduced themselves, before inviting them in. You can imagine the surreal conversations that followed, comparing crop rotations, fishing grounds and weather patterns with someone whose house you'd arrived at five decades before, after Chairman Mao's pudgy finger had landed on your village. Where you arrived to find ashes in the stove, a pile of firewood neatly stacked for the next meal, a full storeroom of rice, and unopened barrels of home-distilled sorghum liquor. 
Middlewang, however, did none of this. He spent all but one day of his two weeks on the island at Big Wang's bedside. Sometimes Big Wang seemed aware of the miraculous reappearance of his other brother. He'd call him by his name and keep asking where he'd been and to promise he wouldn't leave him. At other times, Big Wang would relive the day he'd left the island, telling Middle Wang about his plans to sell his cargo of dried squid and pick up some extra cash doing deliveries for the traders of Fuzhou and Taizhou. He could barely see with his good eye, but Big Wang insisted on keeping a black eye patch over the eye he'd lost during his military service. When his mind took him back to see, this lent Big Wang a piratical look. But more often, Big Wang was confused. He'd mistake Middle Wang for their younger brother, Small Wang, already a decade in his wheelbarrow coffin. But mostly, Big Wang would look blankly at Middle Wang, like a stranger. After 13 days of this, even the cheerful Middle Wang could stand it no more. The day before he was scheduled to leave, Middle Wang embraced his unresponsive big brother, picked up his suitcase, and left Big Chan Island forever. A month later, back in Alabama, Middle Wang heard Big Wang had died. Within a year, Middle Wang too was dead, but not before he'd told his story to me, with his wife translating, peering around my right ear, the same story I've just told you. Bit of a downer, right? Much less satisfactory than the first version, but maybe a bit more credible. Still, at least Big Wang managed to see both his brothers before he died. A slender thread, but still a human link between the destinies of the three brothers Wang, before only one was left to tell me their remarkable, unbelievable story. Mind you, if you think that's grim, I could kill off all three of them by 1956 if that would remove the sting. It's the hope that gets you, after all. Now, what if I were to tell you that all three life stories are true, and I've simply connected them as pretend brothers as a harmless narrative device? How would that make you feel? Would it make the story better? Or worse? Would it make it more or less likely that you'd listen all the way to the end, as you now have? Would it make it more or less convincing? What if only two of the stories were true, and I made up one just to make it sound better? Or if only one's true, and I made two of them up? All storytellers can tell you about the power of the rule of three. Ever wondered why we're not told the tale of the four little pigs? The two billy goats gruff, Goldilocks and the eleven bears, or the six musketeers. But even if the story of the three brothers Wang is a narrative confection, surely the bare bones of the story, the basic Cold War history of the evacuation, that must all be true, right? I can't possibly have made the entire thing up from start to finish, can I? You can't really fact-check all the business about Mrs. Wang's communication with her husband, the Alabama summer heat and her living room and the biscuit tin with the letters, but have you actually tried to find Big Chen Island on a map? Have you checked the US Navy veteran online forums I mentioned? Or the professor's article on the influence of the Dachan evacuees published in the Journal of Culinary Historians of New York, if that exists? It would only take a minute for you to check that, Go ahead. I'll wait.
Did you bother? If not, you can't really care all that much which bits are true and which not, and that's fine. But if you do want to know which bits are true and which false, why? Why does it matter so much to you? If all I have to do is to tell you something's true and can be checked, and you don't check it, it doesn't actually have to be true at all. At the end of each episode, I've been telling you that C2 News has a goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. Now, taking action to remove carbon from the atmosphere depends on understanding climate science. Science requires a belief in some kind of objective truth, and that means knowing how to tell truth from lies. When it comes to stories, we humans like things to be neat, simple uncluttered by nuance or complexity. So next time you hear a story about climate action that's neat, simple, and uncluttered by nuance or complexity, or in particular if you hear anyone say something like, I'd like to think, or I'd like to believe, or an answer seems too good to be true, remember this story of the three brothers Wang. The Truth Lies in Bedtime Stories is a podcast from See Through News. See Through News is a not-for-profit social media network with the goal of speeding up carbon drawdown by helping the inactive become active. Life on the Edge was written, narrated and produced by Sternwriter. Audio production by Rupert Kirkham. Thank you for listening.